Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. Today, I'll be speaking with Christopher W. Seymour, MD, MSc, who is the lead author on an article published in the October Critical Care Medicine entitled, Diurnal Sedative Changes During Intensive Care, Impacts on Liberation from Mechanical Ventilation and Delirium. Seymour is an assistant professor of critical care and emergency medicine at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He is also a core faculty member in the Clinical Research, Investigation, and Systems Modeling of Acute Illness Center in the Department of Critical Care, where he contributes to the Program on Critical Care Health Policy. Dr. Seymour's research program focuses on the organization of critical care during pre-hospital care, including tiered regionalization of critically ill patients during out-of-hospital care, for which he was the Society's 2011 Vision Grant recipient. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Seymour. Uh, You're welcome, and I appreciate the Society of Critical Care Medicine inviting me to participate. And hoping that you could tell us a little bit about your background, uh, perhaps how you became interested in uh, critical care and some of your current research, uh, and evolve that into how you became involved with the ABC trial in this uh, particular study uh, as a sub-analysis uh, of the ABC trial. Sure. So my background uh, began with medical school and residency in Philadelphia, and uh, I think from an early stage of my academic career, I was interested in the intensive care units and sort of the hustle and bustle of patient care. And that led me to pursuing a pulmonary and critical care fellowship at the University of Washington, uh, where both from a clinical and a research standpoint, I was uh, I was really fascinated by how we find patients who are quite sick and identify them earlier. Uh, and that even meant in the emergency department or even in the ambulance before they get to the hospital. So my, my current research is to work with paramedics who are transporting patients from multiple locations to the hospital and trying to find out how to identify critical illness and sepsis even earlier. But along the road, um, I had the pleasure of working with many outstanding mentors, uh, who included uh, some at the University of Pennsylvania as well as those at Vanderbilt, and include uh, Dr. Wes Ely. And through those connections, uh, we began uh, to discuss uh, really a, a unique study that was conducted, the Awakening Breathing Control Trial uh, that was published in The Lancet in 2008. And, uh, and we're thinking about some very interesting questions we could ask uh, that follow on from uh, really the seminal findings in that paper. And part of it uh, involves our own uh, clinical practice in intensive care units, where often um, we are trying to minimize uh, the use of sedatives like benzodiazepines and propofol when at all possible. And yet many times when we come in and round in the morning, we notice that the doses of, of, of our critically ill patients were higher than when we left the night before. And it led us to think about studying uh, the dosing regimens for patients uh, both during the day and at night, and if there were any consequences of uh, increasing the dose for our mechanically ventilated patients uh, after dark. So the data that was collected at Vanderbilt was collected with this uh, study in mind or studied or collected uh, uh, for other reasons as well? That's a great question. Uh, there was four sites in the ABC trial, uh, two of which were in Nashville, uh, St. Thomas Hospital as well as the Academic Center. 
there was uh, uh, some thought given towards uh, uh, secondary analysis uh, when conducting the ABC trial, of, of which uh, dosing regimens, dose amounts, uh, was one of them. And so data was collected at one hospital, St. Thomas, uh, on an hourly basis, uh, the amount of propofol and benzodiazepines given to the study patients. Your intent was to look at uh, the impact of this increased, um, at least perceived sedation, and see if, in fact, it were uh, happening, and, and its impression, its in, impact on both delirium and coma. Is that correct? That's right. You know, really, when we uh, looked through the literature, there had been a few investigators or groups that had tackled this question of what happens at night. Just a, a single group, Dr. Weinert, uh, I think from Mayo in 2007, had sort of documented the epidemiology of uh, sedation dosing. And there was variation in, uh, in of course, across patients uh, who had doses increased at night. But there was little data um, uh, in a cohort of mechanically ventilated patients uh, that were uh, quite sick at the early stages of their ICU stay uh, that would tell us how many were actually having their dose increased at night or decreased and uh, to look for association between the dose increase and those adverse outcomes that you mentioned, which included delay and liberation from mechanical ventilation and, of course, delirium from a coma on the following day. What, what is your thoughts about why delirium is important? Why, why study it? Right. So, you know, as uh, almost for 10 years now, uh, there have been uh, many publications that have shown delirium is common in the ICU sometimes observed almost in 60 to 80 percent of patients uh, that are that Dr. Eileen and others have published, uh, and that there are consequences of, of delirium, that uh, after patients leave the intensive care unit, they may even have uh, uh, consequences three months out when they're at home as a result of uh, having more uh, delirium days uh, during their critical care stay. Perhaps uh, as many randomized trials have shown, we can minimize uh, the amount of delirium by changing uh, the amount of drugs we give patients. We first wanted to use uh, accurate, as accurate as we could gather data about uh, the amount of drug patients received in the first four days while they were on mechanical ventilation in the intensive care unit in lorazepam equivalent and in weight-based doses of propofol. And then we sought to use as recorded in the data set, validated measures of delirium and coma each day they were in the ICU. And then uh, look at which patients either uh, failed or did not have an attempted spontaneous breathing trial, and then look at those who were extubated and then either reintubated within 48 hours. So we were able to uh, look at those outcomes, coma, delirium, SBT failure, or extubation failure, and look for relationships between those outcomes and the amount of drug the patients were getting both during the daytime from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m., as well as those who had a dose increased at nighttime from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. And certainly uh, many of us uh, seem to perceive this increased realm of sedation at night and get concerned about the, the failure for of uh, extubation or failure for, to tolerate a spontaneous breathing trial. But you're, so your results seem to validate many of our concerns. Can you, can you take us through some of the, the, the novel data? Sure. So there, was a, there was quite a bit of data uh, that, that came out from this cohort. And first off, we noticed that uh, the majority of patients had uh, either coma or delirium at some point 
during their stay, during these first five days while they were on the ventilator. You know, we found that across all the patient days we looked at, coma was present on 42 percent uh, and delirium in, in one out of three. When we looked at the actual practice of sedative dosing, uh, on each day we found between 30 and 50 percent of our patients had a propofol dose that was increased at night. And similarly, between you know, uh, 30 to 50 percent also had a benzodiazepine increase at night. I will comment that you know, these patients were on sedative infusion, uh, and the average uh, Ativan dose or lorazepam dose during, the, during these early days of mechanical ventilation was about 3 to 4 milligrams an hour. Propofol was about 40 to 50 mics per kg per minute. So all patients were on a continuous sed uh, infusion of the sedative. Right, and that's, that's as the protocol was in the awakening and breathing yeah. trial. And so even though almost uh, 30 to 50 percent of our cohort had doses increased at night, it's worth pointing out that those dose increases were rather modest. And so on average, the benzodiazepine dose increased only about 0.2 to 0.4 milligrams, while the propofol uh, increased on average less than 10 mics. When we went ahead and next tried to look whether these dose changes uh, and daytime doses were associated with outcome, we found some, some really interesting results. First of all, we confirmed that the daytime dose of benzodiazepine uh, was associated, went higher uh, with adverse outcomes. This meaning delays in spontaneous breathing trials being successful, delays in successful extubation, and the presence of delirium on the following day. But more than that, the dose increase at night of the benzodiazepine was also associated uh, with delirium the next day, as well as delays in liberation. Surprisingly, the effect of propofol uh, was less impressive. And so changes in propofol at night were associated with coma the next day, but not with delays in liberation from mechanical ventilation. The more benzodiazepine that you're on during the day is associated with poorer outcomes. If you increase doses at night, those outcomes are worse as well. And that propofol seems to have both daytime and nighttime increases in propofol um, seem to have uh, less effect on uh, the outcomes uh, from mechanical ventilation and delirium. That's right. You know, the, the daytime dose uh, and its association with adverse outcomes was a confirmation of many, many other uh, cohorts and investigators in the past. Really, the, the new contribution uh, from our, our study was what happens with these patients uh, who have doses increased at night, and does this confer any additional risk? I, I suppose it's possible that those doses were increased because of delirium, um, so that uh, delirium was actually the, the rationale for increasing and ha it happened to be associated then with increases in infusions? Right, so this can get circular and very difficult to untangle. Um, with the data set that we have in hand, we're actually unable to unpack the reasons why doses were increased at night, one of which you've mentioned may be new delirium at night, but also could have been procedures that need to you know, happen, whether that's a, a new central line or transport down for an MRI or a concomitant you know, delivery of other medications. And so we're unable to, to discern why the medications were increased and sort of understand that causal pathway. We can only say that there was an association between the dose increase and the outcome on the next day. So why do you think 
perhaps that propofol had uh, a less of an impact on uh, your outcomes in this trial? Well, that's, uh, that's a very good question. And we certainly will say that our data in no way endorses propofol right. being superior uh, to benzodiazepines for early sedation of mechanically ventilated patients. And, and really, we did not have the sample size, nor was that the goal of the study. Sure. But we did find, and you might expect based upon the half-life of propofol, that at least delirium the next day or changes in readiness for spontaneous breathing trials uh, had, uh, were impacted less when the propofol was increased at night compared to when these other drugs like benzoate, that have a longer half-life. I always get concerned with propofol times with a very sudden awakening, and I always imagine that perhaps that could very easily lead to delirium, but certainly the lingering of the drug with benzodiazepine seems to be a very plausible explanation. That's right. And is there so is there a way to kind of correlate this is a is a certain increase um, related to a certain increase in risk of delirium or um, risk of a failed uh, spontaneous breathing trial? Right. So you know, very sort of complex statistics have been used to come up with these associations, but it was sort of helpful to try to put this into context uh, when you're at the bedside. And you know, we found from the models that. Uh, you know, when a patient had an increase in their benzodiazepine dose by one milligram at night, that the probability of delirium on the next day increased from less than 10% if there was no change to almost 60% uh, if the dose increased by a milligram. You know, the, the effect for propofol, uh, although you know, marginally significant in models, was that if increased by a dose of 10 micrograms per kilogram per minute, that the probability of experiencing delirium the next day uh, was about uh, 10%, or 1 in 10. And we can go through and, and come up with uh, similar proportions for SVT failure and extubation failure. But, but in general, uh, our take-home message was that when the doses were increased at night, we found a higher probability of extubation failure, SVT failure, and delirium, particularly with benzodiazepine, on the next day. It certainly seems as though sedation um, practice has changed uh, since the uh, ABC trial was uh, was performed, along with, um, I think, lesser sedation, perhaps less continuous infusions, and also new, newer um, medications. How do, you, how do you put this in perspective uh, in, in current practice? Well, we do know, as you comment, that sedation awakenings have been incorporated into protocols now particularly in light of, of uh, the ABC trial uh, being released now five years ago. Surveys of current practice have shown that in almost half of intensive care units, sedation protocols are not even used. Um, these have come from Scandinavia and Australia and New Zealand, and even some uh, recently uh, looking at Washington State. Among those that, even, that do implement sedation protocols, the use of sedation awakening trials uh, continues to be in the minority. I think our data highlights that as we work to um, have greater implementation of uh, protocolized sedation in the intensive care unit and incorporate awakenings into our morning activities, that we need to not ignore what's happening after dark and that this may mean inclusion and focus with uh, clinicians and staff that are taking care of patients at night but also specific 
further training on linking those sedation assessments with subsequent use of benzodiazepines or um, minimizing the use. Yeah, so, so what happens at night is uh, at least as important, uh, if not perhaps even more important, than uh, a daily interruption or the morning interruption of sedation. It sounds like what you're saying. Well, I can't, I can't endorse it being more important, mm-hmm. but I think it's, it's something we need to now uh, take note of. Uh, you know, many investigators have shown us that uh, the total amount of drug and the amount of drug delivered during the day needs to be minimized, and that we need to focus on awakening patients in the morning. And if not increasing the dose at night helps us wake them up in the morning, then I think um, that would only benefit our patients more. Absolutely. Was was there any difference um, noted between the two arms of the ABC trial in, in, in your analysis? Right, a good question. In the models that we uh, we constructed, we used the randomization arm in the ABC trial uh, as a confounder, meaning we adjusted for which um, uh, side that they were randomized to, but we did not specifically look for differences uh, in the intervention group versus the control arm. You know, interestingly, I, I, yeah, perhaps our perception uh, is not always correct. There was, there was actually a overall minority of patients, um, a significant minority, that did have their uh, sedation increased uh, at night. Um, is, what are the predictors then? Was there, is there a rationale that we can find why some patients had their sedation increased and why others did not? So I wish I had all the data to answer the question. And I can certainly uh, hypothesize that certainly sicker patients were probably the ones who were having their doses increased. Uh, We worked very hard to adjust for severity of illness in the analysis. Uh, But this would sort of be the the direction of the indication bias. The sicker you are, uh, the more procedures you may need, and therefore the the more sedation you may be getting at night. Uh, As um, we've learned more about having uh, different physician staffing models and perhaps having uh, uh, attending physicians or others uh, that are in the unit at night. These procedures may even be more common um, and more drugs, therefore, may be uh, used more often. Uh, but beyond uh, uh, these hypotheses, it's hard to tell uh, and certainly a focus of future study for us. Uh, what uh, sedation assessments look like in patients uh, throughout the day and how this is related to the drug dosing, um, both during the day and at night. The ICU that was studied, the nighttime staffing, was with attending physicians or resident physicians or fellows, do you know? Right. Uh, at that time, there was not in-house attending staffing, as best we can tell, uh, and this uh, would have been gathered in the early 2000s. All right. And you kind of uh, allude to it in some of uh, your comments to me that uh, – with the Wallace uh, paper su- suggesting uh, having intensivist uh, intendings at night uh, may not necessarily improve um, outcomes. How, how do we uh, put this in perspective, and how do we uh, control for uh, sedation at night? Well, I think as some of us, as many of us work at night, um, have the opportunity to work with our nighttime staff, whether it be nurses or therapists or even pharmacists, who are helping uh, decide if patients do or do not need sedation, we can continue to educate them on uh, the consequences, you know, the, the delays and perils that result from both high doses of sedation during the day and what happens if we turn up the drip. Uh, 
beyond just all of us educating our staff, we need to focus on those who are generating the protocols. As more and more ICUs incorporate protocols, perhaps uh, we can include uh, more regular sedation assessments, linking those with proper drug dosing, and making sure we're not spreading the false belief that benzodiazepines will lead to restorative sleep and therefore we need more of them after dark. Yeah, I almost think of, uh, as I was reading your paper, I thought of, you know, our unit perhaps uh, having some uh, feedback uh, to the nighttime staffing each time a patient uh, during the day was delirious or uh, failed an SBT and the sedation had been increased. Uh, kind of some kind of a continuous feedback loop to try and change behavior. It's always challenging, even as you've alluded to, you know, once you institute a protocol, getting it actually followed and changing behavior is, uh, is really the challenging part. That's right. In implementing protocols, as we've learned from weaning protocols in the ICUs in the 90s and early 2000s, is, is challenging. And, and we hope we're up to speed in most intensive care units with that step. Uh, over the past decade, incorporating sedation protocols has really been a focus and likely will continue to be so. Well, thank you so much uh, for uh, having the time to speak with us about your uh, important contribution, and we certainly look here forward to hearing more from you. Thanks a lot, Dr. Weinstein, and, and I think we need to absolutely thank the patients, uh, the staff, and the other researchers that were involved in the APC trial uh, that helped make this study possible, and I'd also like to thank the Society uh, for inviting me today. Thank you. Very kind words. Thank you all for listening. This concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care Podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash eyecriticalcare. For the Eye Critical Care Podcast, I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. Experience the true beauty of the Caribbean at SCCM's 42nd Critical Care Congress to be held January 19th to 23rd, 2013 in San Juan, Puerto Rico. From the breathtaking sunsets and shimmering beaches to the ancient caves and cool mountainous subtropical rainforests, Puerto Rico provides a vast canvas of diverse environments and unrivaled natural wonders. Surrender to the charm of island life at the 2013 Congress, where more than 4,000 critical care professionals will come together to advance the mission of providing the best possible care to critically ill and injured patients. Register today at www.sccm.org congress. Michael S. Weinstein, M.D., F.A.C.S., F.C.C.P., serves as an associate editor for the Eye Critical Care Podcasts. Dr. Weinstein is associate professor of surgery at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He is director of the Surgical ICU and executive medical co-director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Programs for Critical Care. His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the intensive care unit medical ethics, diaphragmatic pacing, and spinal cord injury. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.